Wild Precious Life is brought to you by McNally Jackson, independent booksellers with locations in Nolita, Williamsburg, Seaport, and downtown Brooklyn. To find your next great read, drop by or shop online at McNallyJackson.com. And we're brought to you by Greenlight Bookstore. Through knowledgeable staff, curated book selection, community partnerships, and a robust e-commerce website, Greenlight combines the best traditions of the neighborhood bookstore with a forward-looking sensibility and welcomes readers of every kind to the heart of Brooklyn. Learn more and shop online at greenlightbookstore.com. I was watching this TV show the other day, and a character mentioned how most adults would do just about anything to get back to a certain period of their lives. Sure, lots of folks might revisit the birth of a child or a wedding or a beach vacation that was particularly restful or sublime. But this character was arguing not on behalf of a day, but a golden time, which when you think about it, floods you with nostalgia and some of the best memories of your life. I got to thinking that I'm fortunate to have several golden ages. My childhood is flooded with memories of playing kick the can in the backyard and riding my yellow banana seat bicycle until the streetlights came on. My high school years are crowded with laughter and drama about who is taking who to which football game or dance. But I think the period of time I'd most like to bottle is my early 20s. I'm thinking in particular of this photograph of me on a ferry boat with three of my best friends. We are laughing our faces off because we've taken such an epic wrong turn that we ended up riding a boat to a destination that should have been completely accessible by highway and car. We were hours late to a weekend retreat that we were supposed to be leading. But in the photo, we're not stressed. We're not bothered. Instead, we are enchanted by this ridiculous adventure, a detour we'd made into a story to tell for years to come. When I look back at those young, unencumbered faces, I would do just about anything to revisit that time in my life when I was so unburdened, when everything I owned could fit into the trunk of someone's car. Not even my car, because I didn't have one of those yet. And it was no big deal, because most of the people I loved and cared about lived only a few footsteps away. It's not like I want to go back and have to do everything over. I don't want to trade in the joy of my life now, my great kids, this writing career. But I would like to bottle that golden feeling, that effortless youth, and the wonderful belief that every wrong turn we make is merely an opportunity to write a new chapter of our story. I mention all of this because one of my favorite things about today's guest is that in her books, Jennifer E. Smith transports me back to the glory days. She's figured out how to bottle nostalgia, and her YA novels make me smile and swoon and feel young all over again. She's the author of nine books for young adults, including The Statistical Probability of Love at First Sight and Hello, Goodbye, and Everything in Between, both of which have recently been adapted for film. More recently, she published a picture book for young people called The Creature of Habit, and she came out with her first adult book, The Unsinkable Greta James. Jennifer E. Smith holds a master's degree in creative writing from the University of St. Andrews in Scotland. 
and her work has been translated into 33 languages. She currently lives in Los Angeles. Jennifer E. Smith, welcome to Wild Precious Life. Thank you so much for having me. So I'm so excited you're here. As a kid, I spent many, many days at the library, and one of my absolute favorite things was when I would read a book by an author and then discover that she had, like, seven others, you know? So I read Dancing Shoes by Noel Streetfield, which is actually out of order because you really should read ballet shoes first. But (laughs) I, I read that, and then I was delighted and gobsmacked to know that she um she had others at my library and I just read my way through them and so I felt similarly delighted when I discovered your titles I was late to the Jennifer E Smith game I I definitely started with statistical probability of love at first sight which I feel like is your third book um but I didn't read it that long ago I mean like oh, wow. right on the cusp of the pandemic I'd say maybe 2019 so I got the epic joy of being like I wonder if she wrote anything else and then there's like Seven more, but there's a million books. I think I've lost track of how many. Is it 12 now? I think it's 11. Yes, I think. I I lose track too, yeah. (laughs) I lose track myself. Yeah, so, I mean, I got to ride on a train with Hugh and May, and I stayed out all night with Claire and Aiden and searched for whoopie pies with (laughs) Graham and Ellie in a small town in Maine. And I just got to do all of that. And then, of course, last month I went to Alaska, cruised to Alaska with Greta and her dad. So thank you for all these trips and just the the great (laughs) wonder of your work. It's so fun. I feel like most people um, did come to them earlier. And so it's been kind of usually you're getting the complaints of, you know, wait, I finished this one. When's the next one coming out? So it's so nice. It's so nice when they're all just there for somebody to discover all at once. Yeah. It was definitely kind of a Noel Streetfield library (laughs) moment. (laughs) Yes. Okay. But before we take too much of a deep dive into all things bookish, I want to back up. And for folks who are not um, familiar with you and your writing, I'm wondering if you can just answer our opening question, which is, Jen, will you tell us your story? My story, I mean, you know, I'm a Midwesterner, a fellow Midwesterner. I'm, I, I grew up in Chicago. I always, always, always wanted to be a writer, but I grew up in a very practical place with a very practical family. Um, and I, I think I never assumed it was something I would get to do as a job. Um, to me, being a writer, saying you wanted to be a writer felt like saying you wanted to be an astronaut or a ballerina. Like those are real jobs that people do and they, they exist, but they, they feel so out of reach in a way and, and far off. So, um, but I was a reader, you know, and, and so, you know, as I grew up, I, um, I went to college in upstate New York and I took a course while I was there called Living Writers, which was just about the coolest thing um, I I could have imagined at the time where every week you read a book and at the end of the week, you, um, the author would come in and you get to ask them questions about the book. And I just, I had never, I think now a lot of people grow up with like really easy access to authors, but at the time, I don't know if I'd even met any author. Um, It just wasn't kind of as common. So I, in the middle of that course, somebody came in and, um, who was an editor at a publishing house in New York city to talk about what it is to be an editor, um, and what it is to work in publishing. And for some reason it had never occurred to me, I I guess I thought that books just like magically appeared on the shelves in bookstores because it had never occurred to me that there was a whole business and a whole industry that made books. Um, I thought if you wanted to be a writer, 
your choices were either to kind of win the lottery and get a book published or to become a journalist. And um, although I was on my high school newspaper, I, it was it was quickly becoming clear to me that I prefer to make stuff up <laughs> than to do journalism. <laughs> so as soon as I kind of like had this revelation about publishing, that that was what I really wanted to do. And when I graduated from college, I um, I applied and got rejected from a million publishing jobs in New York, and then eventually did get one working at a literary agency. Um, and you know. I was still writing uh, while I worked at an agency. I would wake up in the mornings. I would work on weekends. Um, one of my kind of like abiding memories of my early 20s is like all my friends being hungover, watching a movie in the living room and me like trying to write a book in my bedroom, <laughs> also hungover. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I just, I loved this glimpse of working. At, I knew I didn't want to be a literary agent, but getting to work at a job where I got to meet authors, where I got to read manuscripts, um, where I got to just get a, a real like crash course in, in publishing was such a gift. I worked for a legendary literary agent named Binky Urban, who represented so many of my heroes. I mean, Toni Morrison, Cormac McCarthy, E.L. Doctor, Haruki oh Murakami, Jennifer <laughs> Egan, I mean, Donna Tartt, I could go on and on and on. It was just like a dream. Um, and so I worked there for a few years and I was writing all the time. And then um, when it sort of came time to, to do something else, because I didn't ultimately want to be an agent, I um, realized that before I, I, I wanted to be an editor, that was always the goal to be an editor at a publishing house. But I, um, I tried, I, I first decided I wanted to give myself a year to just write. And I decided to go to grad school um, in, in St. Andrews in Scotland and spent a year just completely just writing and sitting in pubs with friends and traveling and just, you know, filling my cup in that way. And it was a, such a wonderful year. And at the end of it, I came back to New York and I got a job, um, in, at Random House, um, in editorial. So during that time I had written my first book, which was a book called the comeback season. But like you, most people think the statistical probability of love at first sight was my first one because it was, the first one that really sold any copies. Um, if you are one of the three people who bought a copy of the comeback season, I automatically love you forever. <laughs> um, but I, I was, you know, I wrote in grad school. I worked, you know, before I left ICM, I had actually sold my, sold the comeback season and it got published when I got back. And, um, and then I just sort of picked up for about seven years. I worked my way up through the ranks as an editor. I learned so much. I think being an editor made me a better writer. Being a writer made me a better editor. Um, it was just the best education ever. And I, um, and I published, I think, six or seven of my books while I was writing, working full time. Um, and then uh, eventually, I, it, it, I, I always sort of said that I had figured out the balance of being a writer and an editor, but then when the book started um, doing doing well enough that I was I was needing to travel and go to book festivals and go do school visits and tour, um, that to me is sort of a separate job from being a writer. That's being an author, and and it was sort of a third job that that became hard to sustain all three. So, um, sadly, at a certain point, that I left publishing and have been writing full time ever since and love it and feel just incredibly lucky when I look back at my kid self who dreamed of being a writer and never thought it was a thing that might actually happen that I'm doing it now. Um, I was living in New York all that time. I now live in Los Angeles. Um, and I am just, 
continue to feel really, really lucky. So I don't know if that was a, a good, good life story summary. <laughs> it was the publishing version of it all, but um, I have been very lucky to get to see sort of a 360 degree view of the publishing process, having worked for an agency and editor as an editor and um, as a writer. And as a writer, I've written, you know, adult book now, picture book, middle grade, young adult. Um, I've sold a couple scripts. So it's been really an education throughout this whole time to just get to see so many aspects of this industry, which I love. That is such a beautiful story. And I'm fascinated by the idea that you got to work at an agency where some of these greats were just sort of floating in and out. Were you bringing them sandwiches or were you telling them to cut that paragraph? Like, what was your job? It evolved from A to B. So at the beginning, I was really kind of, you know, just doing real assistant work. I was right out of college. I had, it was so wide eyed. I had no idea. I was just, I basically got the job by being like, I don't don't know. I really love to read. (laughs) Um, And uh, but but once it was a position where a lot of people who had come through the position had wanted to be agents um, who came from like backgrounds as from law school or from um, business school and things like that. And when my boss sort of realized how much I like to read and she started giving me me things to work on. And, and by the time I left there, I was, you know, editing um, for the clients and, you know, I got to. I got to do like real editorial work for people like Jennifer Egan and Richard Ford and like all these amazing authors. And and it just completely, um, it made me feel completely sure about what I wanted to do next, which was to be an editor, but to, to get to kind of start at that level of of writer, um, was just the best opportunity ever. I I will always be grateful for that job. And, and my boss Pinky has become a, a mentor throughout my career. And I just feel really lucky. That's bananas. I can picture you on the phone with Jennifer Egan and, and being like, this part about the goon squad is good. But go ahead and cut <laughs> cut the candy house out. I, I feel like that's a different book. And her saying, I okay, seem nice yes. and I look nice, but I'm really <laughs> tough as an editor. <laughs> wow. I'm not sure that the whole world knows the difference between agents and yeah. editors. I feel like I, I do, but I I actually don't know that I do. I think of the editor as working with the words on the page. And I think of the agent as doing the buying and the selling of the words on the page, but I bet they're much more, um, I don't know, intertwined than we realize. Yeah, they, they, they are. I mean, it is, I didn't know when I went in either. I, um, had gotten rejected from a million editorial assistant jobs and then, you know, found my way into an interview, like literally having no idea what an agent did. And, um, it is, I mean, they're the ones who, they are looking to fall in love with a, a manuscript from an unknown writer and then to shape it and edit it and, and do the work to, to, and then sell it. So it's their job to get to know editors. So they know who the right people are to submit the manuscript to, um, you know, they do the, all the contracts and um, sell often like the international rights and the film rights and, um, and really like they're, they're the author's advocate throughout the whole publishing process. And then on the editorial side, it's it's definitely working with the page, but it's always surprising when I tell people how I think they picture editors like sitting in a room filled with books and uh, you know a, like a glass of whiskey <laughs> um, to as, uh, as they like work all day. But actually, it's so much. It's it's the marketing, it's the publicity, it's the meetings. Like you are shepherding as the editor the book through the entire process. So it's it's the same thing. You're getting to know agents. You're looking to find something that you completely fall in love with. I think there's also real 
feeling among writers sometimes that editors are gatekeepers and they're always rejecting everything. But the truth is like, at least for me, when I was an editor, I was just always looking to fall in love. And and when you do, it's like the best feeling in the world when you find a book that or a new voice or a manuscript that, you know, you think is, is fantastic. And, um, and then your job is to fight for it all the way through to fight for your vision for how, um, how to make it better, but also to preserve the author's vision for what they want it to be. And then to kind of steer it all the way through the publishing house and all the different, you know, from jacket copy to, to cover art, to marketing and publicity, and then all the way out until it's, you know, a hard rectangular object on the shelf of a bookstore. Do you remember any books you fell in love with from that time? Oh yeah. I mean, I did um, The Language of Flowers, which was a really big hit. I, I edited Lauren Graham, um, the actress's um, book, who now is a good friend and, and my writing partner on some things. And Lorelai? Like Lorelai yeah. Gilmore? Yeah, yeah. She's oh, my God. Great, tell her I said that. No, don't tell her that. Tell her I said, oh, God, Luke, Lorelai, coffee. Shit, I've seen all of those. <laughs> don't tell her anything until I get my act together. Um, language of flowers i read though that was beautiful yeah, that you edited it, that i edited that book I, that was a, a big acquisition for me i um i got to do a book called the privileges by jonathan d which was a pulitzer finalist i mean it was just it was such a um i just i loved that chapter of my life i still miss it often well i think this helps me understand some of your premises in your books because i just I fall for these scenarios that you put these characters into. And again, for folks who aren't familiar in the statistical probability of love at first sight, Hadley um, misses a plane and then meets Oliver on the next flight. And you are thinking about, is it even future? Could you even envision a future with someone you've met in a chance meeting briefly in an airplane? Like that's, it's impossible. It's improbable, but there's a story there. I mean, in Windfall, a uh, girl. Oh, um, Teddy is the Alice. boy. Alice. Yeah, Alice buys yeah. Teddy a lottery ticket and it wins, right? The yeah. best possible thing happens. And then all of these other things happen, right? That happen when you win the lottery. Sure. I mean, in Hello, Goodbye. Um, oh, I love this one. Claire and Aiden. We've all been in that exact situation. Maybe not the last 12 hours, but I had forgotten what that felt like. Yeah. To have a high school boyfriend in many ways, like the first great love of my life yeah. and you're leaving and you have to decide. I mean, they were so deliberate and that this is a book about deciding whether to stay together or, or not. Where do your ideas come from? Do they fall from the sky? Is it like a <laughs> lightning bolt? Itch you need to scratch? You know, Where does it just come from. I think they're usually kind of a what if question. They usually start with like, they, I don't start with characters as much as I start with a scenario or a setup. Um, so it's just kind of wondering like, what if you missed your plane by four minutes, but you, you know, were meant to meet the person, you know, it's, it's often like taking two people who wouldn't otherwise have met and putting them, you know, in the, in the same place at the same time. And I do, you know, I, I often say like, if there's a common thread in all of them, it's that I really am interested in in moments in time that, that act as hinges, like days where there's a clear split between a before and an after. So yesterday your life was one way, tomorrow it will be completely different. And I just think I'm fascinated by fate and chance and timing and serendipity and all, like every minute of your life, like if you do one thing instead of the other, it could be different. And so 
I, I like those moments. I also, I do think I try to take premises. Uh, my joke is that I like, <laughs> I try to take what has the potential to be an incredibly cheesy premise and then write it in the least cheesy way possible. <laughs> because <laughs> I do think there's something about the kind of big hooky aspirational wish fulfillment feel to some of these, you know, meeting a movie star, meeting the person you love on a plane, winning the lottery. And, um, but to write them in a way that feels really real. And, um, so it's, yeah, that's, that's sort of the, if there's a common thread to it, I think it's that. That makes me think about Ellie and yes, Graham. Yes. Ellie and Graham from the, let's this not is what happy looks like. this is a, what happy yeah. looks like. So she meets this movie star, but then the cool thing about it and what he loves is that she doesn't give two shits that he's a movie star. In fact, that's the least interesting part about him to her. And you always hear that when you become wealthier or powerful or famous that you don't know if your jokes are funny because no one's going to tell you anymore, right? Everyone's like, oh, that's so funny, because they want to kind of kiss up to you or you're the, you're the CEO or you're the famous people. Um, yeah. I hadn't but I think that. that's, that's sort of the, the perfect example of, like, leaning against the kind of um, cheesiness factor of, like, you know, the the kind of obvious way to do that is with a girl who's like, oh, my God, I feel so lucky. I'm at a movie star and he likes me. And But actually, if you kind of, like, go against type and um, – to me, it becomes a more interesting story. And I think that's often what I'm trying to do. That's so interesting. I once heard Ann Patchett, the writer, I'm paraphrasing here, but she said something like, I'm always writing the same novel. And in her books, people start out in one family and then they kind of wake up or they end up in another. And they spend the time trying to figure out what happened to me? How did, what's happening in this family and what should I do about it? I feel like you're, Plot lines are, are completely different, but you've got something similar at work where you are considering luck or chance or serendipity and how that could upend someone's life, both, you know, for the better and for the worse. Is that yeah. a fair assessment? It is interesting. I think, yeah. And I think a lot of writers, like whether it's conscious or subconscious, um, do that, have, have like kind of come back again and again to the same themes. And you can write entirely different books where the heart of it is is kind of asking the same questions over and over again, which is, is always interesting. But again, I can't stress this enough. They are very different books. They don't feel like the same books. I mean, in your most recent book, The Unsinkable Greta James, great title, by the way. Um, Greta is an indie musician. She's still, I mean, reeling um, from her the loss of her mother. And she ends up on an Alaskan cruise with her father, someone she doesn't get along with real well. And this vacation was to have been mom and dad's like wedding anniversary celebration, the, the the cruise to Alaska they'd always dreamed about. And instead, Greta ends up on this boat, <laughs> ship, boat, um, <laughs> with her dad. And it becomes this exercise in, in reckoning and grief and um, forgiveness. But see, again, that's where like the idea of taking either two people who haven't met and don't know they need each other yet or taking, which, which also happens in in Greta James where she meets a, you know, a kind of charmingly nerdy professor who's also on board the ship. Um, But shout out to Ben. Love it. Shout out to Ben Wilder. (laughs) But with her dad, it's, um, you know, it's, or it's taking two people who don't get along and kind of putting them, I mean, people, the joke with my books is that. The other common theme is that I, I write a lot about travel and I've written, I've written like sort of an alarming number of books that take place on a mode of transportation. <laughs> like I have a, 
I have I'm here for one it. on a plane, one on a train, a road trip one, a ship one. My agent always jokes that my next book's going to be a love story set on a scooter. <laughs> but Motorcycle, I, Segway. Yeah. I know. Golf I've cart. A, you haven't done golf cart yet. Or that donkey. That left up my sleeve. <laughs> donkey <laughs> cart would be really good. I'll, I'll, take that, I'll take that into consideration. But... To me, part of why, I, I, first of all, I just personally love travel. It's a, it's been a really big part of my life. And um, so I find it interesting. You know, I've never been as interested in writing, like, when it comes to YA books, like the books that take place in the, in school with, like, the different hierarchies. I, I, I really enjoy, like, taking people out of their comfort zone and putting them in a place um, that's really different. And, you know, with Greta to put her on a ship in Alaska that's so far from kind of like the music venues where she usually plays and where she's quite literally and figuratively at sea um, was really interesting to me. But part of it is also, I like the kind of uh, finite, you know, number of days or hours and also um, a finite amount of space where you have these, these people kind of bumping up against each other and, and seeing what happens. And um, so, you know, they're obviously not trapped on the boat, but also, when you're like, when you don't get along with your dad and you're literally like, it's, you know, it's in the buffet line with him on a cruise ship in, Alaska, in the middle of nowhere in Alaska, like it kind of can feel that way. It ups the stakes of the book. And I also, as a reader, I get a sense of the pacing, really. I, I know that we've got 12 hours or we've got five days or we've got the the span of a plane ride from New York right. to the UK. So as a reader, I also have a sense of the urgency of, you guys got to come on. Quit yeah. fighting. We're yeah. running out of time. <laughs> it kind of puts brackets <laughs> around the story, and I think it heightens everything. So I don't always do that, but um, I've done quite quite a lot of them with this, the short time frame, and I, I, I really enjoy writing them. Well, you're actually giving me a flashback now to um, my husband and I were friends in college. We kind of ran with the same crew, and he asked me out, and I'm like, no, no, no. We're just friends. And his, his um, theory was we got to get out of here. We got to get away from college. And I promise you, like, if we can just get away from all that, <laughs> there's a there there. There's there's something. And it's like, whatever. And then I borrowed my roommate's sweater without asking and then spilled a very non-alcoholic, very healthy for you drink, I'm sure, on it. <laughs> and then like an idiot, like returned it as though she wasn't going to know. And she's like, God damn it, Anne-Marie. I'm like, I don't know who could have done that. Like, I think I lied. Anyway, Bottom line is, like, to to pay her back, she's like, you got to help me get home to Kansas. My parents can't come and get me. I need a ride. I'm like, I don't have a car. <laughs> I live in Ohio. We go to school in North Carolina. Kansas ain't on the way. And she's like, Ken said he'd do it. I'm like, great. Go with him. She's like, if you come. Oh, really? And that was part of his, like, his diabolical scheme to, like, get us out of there. And so we drove from North Carolina to Kansas through like a for real tornado warning, like the sirens going off. There was a Waffle House. And I just remember somewhere in there, he's like asleep in the back and he reaches forward and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he's like, it's going to be okay. And I, like an idiot, I believed him. I'm pretty sure he was asleep. But we dropped her off in Kansas. We like took showers in a truck stop. We went camping next to a no camping sign. All of these oh things happened. Just we you're got literally out living of there. a YA. Yeah, you're living a YA novel. Right, right. That's why yes. I love your books. But I, I had forgotten all about that story. And the, I love the, that story. The finite, um, the finite period of time when you pull people out of this place, and just the rules are different, and you just kind of boil them down to their essence. And there's something about you know 
when you think back on like the experiences where you, you know, did something out of your regular life and regular routine, that's usually the things that are more memorable because otherwise the days kind of blend together. The, the, the start of statistical probability, there's the apograph is one of my favorite quotes um, from Charles Dickens. It says, um, uh, it's from a book called Our Mutual Friend. And it says, and oh, there are days in this life worth life and worth death. And I just always think about that, how like, you know, there's so many days that we don't really remember in a very specific way. And then there are just these certain days. And I'm always interested in, in those those days in, in my books. That's such a great way to put it. I had forgotten about that epigraph. Wow. I bet you had some of those in Scotland, some of those days. You went someplace. Can you remember a day like that? Oh, I mean, yes. I There were so, I, I mean, I, that was like a year that feels like one of those days. It was, you know, because it was, I, I lived in New York City for three years before I went to grad school. And then I came back and lived there for another, I think, 11 or 12. And um, and so that year is, is a year that really stands out for me. But so many, you know, when I think back on my memories, so many, and I've been so fortunate to go travel, like I said, it's just been a really big part of my life. And I've been you know, a lot of places and, and it's often the, the travel experiences that, that are the most memorable to me. Um, so it's, it's another reason why I kind of reach for that in my books a lot. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Where's some place you've been that you love that just influenced your life in a serendipitous way? I took South Africa was a a trip that was one of my favorites and also Kenya. I mean, going on safari in Africa is just incredible. I was lucky enough to go on book tour twice to the Philippines and I went to Japan and Vietnam and Thailand while I was over there. Australia, New Zealand, I was in a major earthquake in Christchurch, New Zealand with my sister when we were there. So that has certainly been a memorable experience. Argentina, um, Iceland, you know, obviously I love the UK and Europe and have, have taken just a lot of them. Just, I, it's been, I, I just, yeah, those are, it's some of my favorite experiences. Sure. I mean, I traveled through books long before I set yeah. foot on an airplane for the first time. I read Noel Streetfield and then studied abroad in the UK. And part yeah. of it is because that seed was planted. And if you can't go, like many of us during the pandemic haven't been able to. To do it through um, books. I mean, this is what yeah. I, I've heard so much for Greta James, how how many people have told me, like, it's made them want to go to Alaska. It feels like, you know, just passing along these experiences um, in a way that, that's that's meaningful. I think there's an Emily Dickinson quote, something like, there's no frigate like a book, which I'm pretty sure in high school, I didn't oh, know that. what the word frigate means. Yeah. But <laughs> thinking about Greta James on her boat, that yeah. yeah. And also the way like reading a book 
doesn't feel like an act of bravery. For me, reading a book is like, it's just like a warm cup of tea Comfort, and a blanket yeah. and my comfy. It's, it's, if anything, it's me refusing to tiptoe out into the world. But I also sure. think books can make us brave. And yeah. um, if I trust you enough as a writer, and I do, um, even if I am cruise averse, I might be like, well, I think I might make an exception for that Alaska one. That sounds yeah. good. That, that yeah. the book can become a, a gateway Um a frigate, if yeah. you will, a permission slip to, sure. you can do this thing too. And I think that's kind of the magic of it is like two different people could read that book and one person could book a trip to Alaska and one person could kind of close the book and be in their cozy armchair with their cup of tea and be like, okay, that like, that is really cool to experience that through this book. And that's, that's fine. Um, so I think, you know, it's just, it's been an important part of my writing, um, you know, and it's just an always a fun thing to hear from readers about. Um, the epigraph, you mentioned epigraphs. The epigraph to the unsinkable Greta James um, sets such an interesting tone. It says, we set out to be wrecked. I just, I hung on that. And it's such a good one. What did you mean by that? What were you thinking? Well, first of all, it's it's a J.M. Barry quote, um, you know, who wrote Peter Pan. And it's from a very obscure book he did for his, um, for, not for, sorry, not for his children, for the, I think for the Llewellyn children, um, who you might have read about. And he, it's like a book of photographs of kids, you know, these kids. Um, and, and it's kind of like a, a, a sort of like a pirate story, but it's this very obscure book that Gretchen Rubin, who is a friend of mine, she, she wrote the happiness project. Um, I know, you know, everybody, she, she's wonderful. She's, awesome. You are, she's wonderful. <laughs> and she, um, she became very obsessed with the book and the quote. And, and, and when she told it to me years ago, it stuck with me too. It's just a quote that there's something both, um, like kind of brave and ominous about it. And I, you know, we set out to be wrecked. It's just, when I, you know, I was about midway through this book when it popped into my head again. And I just thought, you know, Greta is going on this trip with her dad, who she's never gone along with and her, um, you know, and it's, she's grieving her mother and it was supposed to be their 40th anniversary trip. And she really doesn't want to be there. And, um, and it just, it felt right for like what she's embarking on. And, but I'm glad it resonated with you too. There's something about it. That's just, it's, it's a little bit of haunting. Um, but it's also, it's also kind of like stalwart to me and, and beautiful in a way. Um, so I, I thought it fit really well. Yeah, no, I, I, I read the book through and then I went back to that. I feel like when, when I was younger, I set out to be wrecked like in relationships, in love, just like opening my heart, saying all the things, feeling all the things, and then getting trounced or accidentally trouncing someone else. And then, you know, you, you learn to, you know, you scar a little bit and you, and you learn to hold back and, um, or, you know, guard, guard your yeah, heart. But then of and course, you're doing, vulnerable. yeah, but then in doing so, then you don't let yourself open to her, but you also don't let yourself open to the 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 magic that so much of what you write about and I feel like Greta um well I mean she brings some of that to her music right at the beginning of the book we 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 learn that she played the song an homage to her mother and it didn't go well and we learned this early on right this that, that it just she brought so much grief to it she stopped the performance it just now the record company is losing faith in her that she's losing faith in her and she's 
trying to guard herself. Like, I feel like the way she plays music is like she sets out to be wrecked. And then she starts kind of guarding and going into herself. And I feel like this is a book about summoning the courage to go on after or in spite of our worst days. Yep. And let yourself be vulnerable and, you know, leave yourself open to the possibility that you're going to be wrecked, but it's still worth, worth doing it. Um, you know, so yes, I, it's, I agree. And I think, I think, yeah, the way of looking at it through her music, um, is especially apt. Yeah. Yeah. I was just picturing her playing her song, like setting out to be wrecked. Um, so I, my dad passed away towards the very beginning of the pandemic. He was sick Sorry. for a time. Thank you. Um, I mean, he was, he was my person, my yeah. most loyal fan, my fiercest supporter. Yeah. I've never played in a rock band, but if I had, he would absolutely have come to my concerts, even though that was not his typical scene. You know, he, he loved me fiercely. He, um, Greta's mom reminded me so much of my dad. I don't know. Whether your parents it's the greatest, are still it's your greatest cheerleader. My parents are still yeah. living and they're great. And, you know, I, I always sort of, you know, in the context of this book joke that they're, they're sort of like both Greta's parents. They're, they're my greatest cheerleaders. They will go to a bookstore and move my, all my books up to the front table. <laughs> they <laughs> read all the reviews They're They, they are really, really proud. Um, and at the same time, they're really, really practical. And I think similar to Greta's dad, they, they worry a lot. And um, certainly when I, um, you know, set out to be wrecked with writing, <laughs> they when I embarked on this career path, they, you know, I come from, you know, a town, a place, as most people probably do, where um, most people have, you know, nine to five jobs with a 401k and benefits and, um, you know, Healthcare. it's... Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, um, you know, it's a risky thing to do and they're a little bit risk averse, but, um, so there it's both, but, but yes, I of course like was able to draw on on them in terms of the cheerleader thing. But I think with Greta, like she's, she's lost that person in her life and the person who's left, they almost just don't have a language for each other anymore. They've lost their translator and, it's just watching them kind of try to find their way back to each other. And her mom was somebody who always showed up. Her dad is not. And, um, it's, you know, it's, it's just about, yeah, that journey to, to try to understand each other in the wake of like both having lost the most important person in their lives. So how did you imagine yourself so perfectly into, I mean, all the things in this book, maybe you're a secret rock star. I don't know. Sounds like, how did you imagine yourself into the music, into the grief? Did you go to Alaska? Like, how did you imagine yourself? What did you draw upon that was true and real and you'd been experienced? And what did you have to imagine yourself into to write this book? Yeah, well, definitely not a rock star. You're a rock star um, Don't me. even know how to play the guitar. <laughs> Thank you. I think I might be tone deaf. It's like, uh, so yeah, the music thing was mostly that I was really interested in exploring what it is to live a creative life. This kind of life where like, on the one hand, you have to be really full of determination and self-confidence and really believe you can be one of the few who makes it. And on the other hand, you're walking a tightrope with no safety net and the bottom could fall out at any moment as it does for Greta. Um, And so that, you know, it came from a personal place in that as, as different as I am from a indie rock star. Um, I think being, doing something creative, doing something in the arts, it's, it's um, there's a lot that's, that's similar there. Um, so that was, that was like kind of the spark of the book for me. Um, you know, 
as I was writing it, as I was getting towards the end of a first draft, um, a, men, a mentor of mine, um, Susan Campbell, who was a great editor, and um, she was an old boss, she was a friend, she was a mentor. Um, she was the person who most encouraged me to try writing for adults. And um, she passed away, unfortunately. And and I, I drew a lot on on those feelings, kind of as I was as I was working on it. Um, so that that's really where that came from. But, but, um, and then the cruise, you know, I, I had done an Alaskan cruise with my family when I was in high school and it always loomed large in that it was just such a unique singular experience. And Alaska is so, uh, you know, unlike any, anywhere else. And when I thought of, I knew I wanted to put them on a ship together. I liked the idea of just how kind of otherworldly and, and a little bit kind of you know, forlorn and, and quiet and Alaska was, and just kind of take these two out of their elements. Um, but I started to write the book drawing on memories of the cruise we took when I was like 17 and quickly realized that like, I was going to actually, if I really wanted to, to write it well and capture it, I was going to have to go and, and do it again. So I did a little writing retreat on an Alaskan cruise and um, it was, <laughs> you know, it's, I tried, you know, I did most of the, the kind of excursions and day trips that Greta and her dad take. I did. Um, I also tried really hard to like, I went to trivia night on the ship and I went to watch, I did not participate, but I watched people do the, learn to do the Macarena and I watched you were a people, joiner. Yes. I was trying to like really soak up every cruise like experience so that I could see how it worked. And I sat with, you know, random people at dinners and, and, um, it just really tried to get the whole experience. And I will say like, whether you're a cruise person or not, which, um, I don't know that I am, but it was so, it's a really good way to see Alaska because it's, um, there are so many places in Alaska that are only accessible by ship or by plane. And so it's just, it's just such a, it's a gorgeous place. And, um, I've never been anywhere like it and it's, it's magical in so many ways. So, you know, I feel so many people have commented on the descriptions of Alaska when they read the book and I feel, um, I feel really happy that I went and did that so that I could, could, you know, capture it in a real way. It's fascinating to hear you talk about, um, all of these adventures that have happened because of books or in order to create books, because I've also heard you talk about, I'm thinking of your children's book that you recently came out with, The Creature of Habit. I've also heard you talk about yourself as a creature of habit. And I don't, I don't think of creatures of habits as going to Kenya and, and, and South Africa and Alaska. So have, has being a writer, how do I say this? Has being a writer been um, a way to nurture your creature of habitness or a way to transcend it? That's a really good question. You're right. I, I mean, I am like a very routine oriented, um, don't like change kind of person yet. Yes. I've done a lot of, a lot of these things. It's funny. It's, it's been, I, I'm trying to think of a time where I have taken a trip specifically because I want to write a book in a certain place. It usually is the opposite. It's usually like I've done something in my life and it, you know, whether it's, three years later or 10 years later or two decades later, it kind of it floats back up to the surface in a way um, in, in, in the form of a story or the start of a story. So it's rare for me to say like, I'm going to read a book and I want to set it, you know, in Patagonia. So I'm going to go take this trip down there. It would more be like, 
I went on a trip to Argentina 15 years ago with friends and now I have the spark of an idea that a book should, you know, happen there. Um, but yeah, I, yes, the, the picture book, I wrote a book, um, for little kids, which has been so much fun. Um, called the creature of habit about a, a little creature who it, it's, it's a little, it's about a creature who, who lives on the Island of habit and does the same thing every day at the same time. And then a, another little creature sails up and kind of knocks his whole world off balance. And I think, you know, for me, it's less about routine than more about kind of like a fear of change and and a fear of uncertainty, which I was trying to kind of get at in that book. Um, and I think, I think writing has certainly been a balm for that. Like you, you tell yourself stories to get yourself through different moments and experiences. And, um, and I guess just on a practical level, I'm, I'm definitely more routine oriented when I'm at home than, than when I'm on the road. Um, but yeah, I think it all, it's probably all contributed to the way that I write and, and on the flip side, like the way I write is influenced by the way I live my life. It's just all, all kind of the same. You wrote this book called The Creature of Habit which is, among other things, about um, a, a bigger monster who eats pineapples every day for breakfast and then waves to the fish and just does the same things. And I actually am, am a creature of habit myself, so I recognize myself in this. But then there's this little monster who comes. He's like, how about oranges? How about a coconut? We could swim with the fish instead of... So it just, just disrupts this monster's world in a, in, a, in a way. But at first, it sort of doesn't sit right. And then you're like, oh, actually, look at this world. So I think I might picture you getting the writing done as the bigger monster, right? You just, you got to eat your pineapple, you got to talk yeah. to the fish, and you got to write. But then I think that maybe every time I'm picturing an idea kind of crashing on the waves of the shore of, of Jen E. Smith, I might picture these books just sort of floating in as the little monster and saying, how about this? Yeah, because you can't, you know, it, you know, I like the the bigger creature. I I like, I don't love change. I don't love uncertainty. I do like routine. Um, but writing, you kind of have to give yourself over, um, you know, and, and lose control a little bit. And and of course, there there is a lot about writing that is disciplined and routine oriented. And it is ultimately at the end of the day about like sitting in a chair and writing words on a page, which um, sometimes I am better at than others. <laughs> but um, I think when you're, you know, I'm not somebody who has... I have writer friends who have like dozens of ideas that are just like queued up and they're excited to write. And like, it feels like every five minutes they're like, Oh, I just had the best idea for another thing. And I'm like, what, who are you? I, I finish something and then I go into like a blind panic for a few months that I'm never gonna have another idea. And then something does so far anyway, eventually come along. But, but I think that's what I mean. Like there is a lot of it that you can, control and, and put in order. And then there's, there's a lot of it that you're just, you are kind of hoping for, for something to drop out of the sky. And, you know, sometimes it's just a matter of like, I mean, often it, it, these ideas start as a version of something that happened to, to me in real life. So like, you know, an example is like in, this is what happy looks like they, the movie star and the girl in Maine are, are connected because, um, I mean, it's an older book now, so it would now happen over text, but it happened over email in the book. <laughs> um, but he, you know, um, he sends an email that goes to the wrong person and they kind of get connected that way. I have a very common name that happens all the time that emails go astray. So I was sort of thinking of of that when I when the spark for that idea came in. And, and you know, like statistical probability, that idea came because I was flying once from Chicago to Dublin and I sat next to 
kind of, it's not a love story. <laughs> I sat next to like an older, older Irish gentleman who <laughs> was reading a book that I had recently finished and we started chatting and we chatted for ages. And then the next morning, like in the book, we um, had to go into separate lines of customs because he was in the line for Irish citizens and I was not. And um, at the end, I we didn't quite say goodbye. And I thought maybe we would see him on the other side of customs, but then my line took longer. And, and I just thought, you know, how interesting that you can spend you know, hours talking to somebody and, and maybe never see them again and, and never even know their last name. So I think you do kind of, you know, wait for these ideas that are often sparked by experiences. So you do have to be out there living and you do have to be kind of waiting for the right, the right spark of something to come along. But then once it does, um, and I say this partly to scold myself right now, because I need to get into a better writing routine at the moment. But once it does, like, your job is really to just sit down and write it. And, you know, easier said than done, of course. Um, but it is a matter of just, you know, not getting in your own way and not worrying too much about it being perfect, but just getting the words on the page, at least at the beginning of the process, which is a very big creature kind of sentiment. <laughs> That's excellent. Okay, so a children's book, an adult book. I read that you've also been working on screenplays because I know, to, I mean, there's a lot of changes going on for you, Creature yeah. of Habit. How's that all been? It's been so much fun, actually. I, you know, I, for a long time, would write one YA book and then take a little break and then write the next YA book and kind of, you know, rinse and repeat. And I, I have loved doing that. And I feel really fortunate to, to have gotten to do so. But I had a moment a few years ago where I just, I felt like for like a decade, I've been doing you know, a similar kind of thing. And I wanted to shake things up. And so I decided to try writing my first picture book, started my first adult novel, and decided I wanted to try to write a screenplay. Um, really decided I wanted to try to learn how to write a screenplay because it took, took some time to figure that one out. But it's just been fun to do different things and try new things and, um, you know, and, and um, just have everything like be mixed up a little bit more than it had been. And, um, it's, it's, I'm, I'm really, I'm having a really good time right now with everything. And which ones are being made into movies? I feel like I used to know, but I don't. It's, um, um Hello, Goodbye and Everything in Between will actually be out July 6th on Netflix. <gasps> um, party. <laughs> yeah. And, um, I love it. It's so good. And, um, it stars Jordan Fisher and this, um, actress Talia Ryder, who they're both amazing. And, it is just, it is just wonderful. I, I feel so lucky and proud of it. And, um, and then statistical probability of love at first sight has also been made that will also be on Netflix, but we don't know when. Um, and that is also just a gorgeous, gorgeous movie. It's, it's that one I've waited a very long time for. Um, it was started filming, um, almost 10 years exactly to the week since it first got optioned by, um, by different producers, but it was a long journey from, from the page to the screen for that one. And I feel like we ended up just with the exact version I could have ever hoped for. And, um, it's just, it's just perfect. I love it so much. Oh, that's triumphant. I'm so excited for yeah. both of those. Yay. I didn't write either of those scripts though. They were, they were both written by, by wonderful writers, but I, I did write a script for, this is what happy looks like. And I co-wrote a script I'm co-writing a script, um, for field notes on love with, um, with Lauren Graham. Um, so those are just still in development. Oh my gosh. But. Mentioning this is what happy looks like. One of my favorite things about that book is it's that, it's that sentence right there, right? This is what happy looks like. I feel like I've learned from that book in particular, and really from your writing in general to put voice to the small 
beautiful things in my world that make me happy. I mean, early on in the book, I'm not giving anything away in here. I think it's from Ellie. Ellie lists like what makes her happy, like sunrises over the harbor, ice cream on a hot day, the sun sound of the waves down the street, the way my dog curls up next to me on the couch, evening strolls, great movies, thunderstorms, a good cheeseburger, Fridays, Saturdays, Wednesdays even, sticking your toes in the water, pajama pants, flip-flops, swimming, poetry, the absence of smiley faces in, in an email, which is a whole conversation. But <laughs> whole thing in the book. <laughs> I love I love your habit of noticing happiness all around us. And I find myself doing more of that. Like I love that feeling when you lay down to go to sleep, just like when you first get in your bed, you're just like, yes, knowing you can sleep in tomorrow, which is yes. rare, but when you can, yeah. it's just like different sleep. I love the crunch of a pretzel. I love it, that moment when a hot beverage is no longer hot, but it's not, it's not going to burn the roof of your mouth, but it's not warm. And it's like that perfect sweet spot that in moment. between. And every <laughs> once in a while, you're sharing it with like someone you love or you're laughing with an old friend or laughing with a new friend. Um, thank you for reminding us to find happiness because you're just so yeah. good at it. Oh, well, thank I mean, that's so kind. I, I, I feel the same. I just, it's always looking for those little things. And I think, you know, if there's anything the last couple of years taught us, is like you don't have to go to Alaska or somewhere far flung for that, that there's so many little moments um, at home, just, you know, being curled up with a good book or, you know, when the sun comes out and you can go sit outside and, um, all these these kind of little things that add up in, into the big things. That's delightful. Okay, we always end with a few icebreakers. These are just quick little questions. I could talk okay. to you all day, but um, <laughs> just you get to pick one. Okay, so um, dogs or cats? Dogs. I would be remiss if I didn't mention my dog who is curled up at my feet right now. <laughs> What's your dog's name? His adopted name was Tater Tot. So it's Tate, but Tater Tot suits him really well. <laughs> oh. I love it. He looks like a tater tattoo. He's like a roly poly old beetle. (laughs) Sweet angel. Oh, um, (laughs) coffee or tea? Uh, Tea. Mountains or beach? Mountains. Early bird or night owl? Early bird. Uh, Breakfast club or pretty in pink? Ooh, breakfast club. I read that you're from Chicago, like the outskirts. So did John Hughes movies? Yes. Creep I grew up into in the your... town where he, yeah, he lived in my town um, and filmed those movies kind of in all the suburbs around my town. And it's, yes, yeah, so those were, those were a big thing growing up. Oh my gosh. That's most excellent. Um, loud or quiet? Quiet. Are you a risk taker or the person who always knows what the band-aids are? <laughs> Definitely where the band-aids are. If you could time travel, would you go back in time or forward in time? Ooh, that's a good one. I think back in time. Why? Just feel like history is so interesting. It just does not, you know, if I, I don't know if we're talking about like living back in time, maybe not, but just visit, I think it would be very interesting to go yeah. so see some of the things we, we read about and learn about and have studied. Very true. Um, what's something quirky that folks don't know about you? Likes, loves, pet peeves? I can juggle. <laughs> Um, more than two yeah. balls because I've been told that yeah. the two balls I can do doesn't count as juggling which yeah. I think is bullshit by the way I can way. just do the standard three but um, it's something I do sometimes actually when I'm like like working through a writing problem or just trying to distract myself and like reset my brain a little bit and I just walk around <laughs> and juggle 
I love knowing that. That's excellent. <laughs> uh, what do you love about where you live? Well, I'm newish to LA. I've only lived here about a year and a half. And um, oh my God, like the everything they say about the weather is true. It just, it's really, it's so kind of alarmingly perfect every day. And um, it, it's a real mood boost. And, and I get to write outside so much more often than I did um, before. So that's really nice. And I'm also in the hills. So as you look out over mountains and um, it's just all the, the nature is kind of new and different and, and exciting to me. I used to live in L.A. I could walk to the sewage treatment plant and the airport, but also the ocean. So I know what you're saying about it. It's pretty great. <laughs> <laughs> that really sums it right up. Oh, uh, and last one. If we were to take a picture of you really happy and doing something that you love, what would we see you doing? Um, I think writing or being with my friends or writing with my friends or being with my family and my nephews travel. There's so many things. I'm off. I often have a really big smile on my face. It's not it's not a rarity. Oh, my gosh. That's excellent. Well, like I said, I could talk to you all day. Folks, our guest has been the wonderful Jennifer E. Smith. We will link to all her books on the show notes. You cannot go wrong with a single one of them. Um, We're wishing you joy and happiness on the next phase of your journey, Jen. And um, thanks for stopping by. We're grateful. Thank you so much for having me. It was such a great conversation. Wild Precious Life is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. Special thanks to executive producers Gerardo Orlando and Michael D'Aloya, producer Sarah Wilgroup, and audio engineer Ian Douglas. Be sure to subscribe and follow us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.